Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. I was going through some pictures from a recent trip that I took to work in South Africa, and I ran across a photo of a termite mound. It was huge. In fact, it was taller than my shoulders. I also remember that it was blazingly hot when I took that picture. I mean, the temperature was somewhere around 45 degrees centigrade, which is about 115 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, it was hot. So as I looked at the picture, I began to wonder how the termite manages to survive in what amounts to a giant clay pizza oven. I mean, they're pretty small after all, and you'd think they'd just get crispy in there. I've been in lots of adobe buildings in the southwestern United States, and they do manage to control the inside temperature pretty well, but they also have walls that are about two feet thick. So I went looking for answers. I called friends in Africa and biologists at a couple of schools here in the U.S., and before long, I was off on one of my various research projects, and what I found was really cool. Now, the architecture, and it really is architecture, of a termite nest is amazingly complex. The surface of the mound is covered with small holes. Now, these holes connect to a maze of channels and tunnels deep inside the mound, which then lead to a central chimney that runs up the middle of the structure. Deep underground is the nest where most of the colony lives, including the all-important queen. As the heat climbs during the day, the air in the outer channels of the mound heats up, while the more insulated air in the central chimney stays cool. The hotter air rises in the outer channels and leaks out the holes that are all over the surface of the mound, and convection causes the cooler air in the central chimney to be sucked down into the underground colony, displacing the stale air that accumulates there. This is really important because these are living creatures, and while they are tiny, there are a lot of them. Some studies that have been done say that termites make up as much as 95% of the entire underground insect biomass in the world. And like lots of living things, think cows for a minute, termites produce a lot of methane and carbon dioxide, neither of which is good to be marinated in, especially in an enclosed space like a termite colony. In fact, termites produce as much as 4% of the total methane in the atmosphere and about 2% of the carbon dioxide. That's a lot. And of course, it has to be purged from the nest. The natural convection takes care of that really well. What I find so cool about this, no pun intended, is that the termites use the constantly changing outside air temperature to ventilate their hives. But did you know that humans have now taken a lesson from their building skills? In the Middle East, where summertime temperatures can be as high as 140 degrees Fahrenheit, some houses are built around an insulated central chimney that creates a convection flow similar to what's happening in the termite nests, and it works. I've seen it. How cool is that? So termites are really great architects, so great, in fact, that we copy their designs. But after spending so much time digging into termite nests, again, no pun intended, I began to wonder what other animals and perhaps plants we should point our engineers and architects toward, and I found a few. I mean, think about it for a second. Wasps chew wood fibers to make a pulp that they then extrude as delicate sheets of paper. Freshwater eels and some species of rays have evolved to have biological batteries in their bodies. 
The California electric ray is particularly nasty. This creature, which I've seen while scuba diving in California, has an electric organ on each side of its head. The current they generate passes from the lower side of the ray's body to the upper side, which means that the body of the ray is basically a big capacitor. And these things are industrial strength. They can pump out 220 volts at 30 amps, which is seriously dangerous. I saw one of my fellow divers get zapped by a California electric ray many years ago when he mistook it for a halibut and stuck it with a pole spear. We managed to get him back on the boat, but he wasn't right for days. Here's another interesting thing about these electrical critters. In marine species, the batteries are physiologically connected in parallel. In freshwater species, they're wired in series. Don't ask, I have no idea. Now, before we leave behind the world of bioelectronics, I want to share another interesting creature with you. There's a tiny little freshwater fish that has a very, very large name. It's called Gymnarchus niloticus, and it uses electricity to find mates and food and to just stay in touch with others of its own kind. Gymnarchus's body is polarized with a positively charged cathode on its head and a negatively charged anode on its tail. Using special cells that generate electricity, this fish emits a series of 300 hertz 10-volt pulses which reflect back like a sonar image and inform the fish about its immediate environment. But here's where it gets really interesting. Like lots of species, Gymnarchus is pretty territorial. Should two of them find themselves in the same area, their transmissions interfere with each other, which makes their detection mechanisms ineffective. But this fish has figured out how to deal with this problem. When the two fish hear each other's transmissions, they both stop pulsing. They then each wait a measurably random period of time before they start pulsing again, but now at slightly different frequencies to avoid interference. It's sonar, and it's the same technique that local area networks use in the communications world to avoid the problem of two simultaneous computer transmissions trashing each other when they collide over a shared medium. This just gets better and better. Another critter that popped up during my research about biological engineering is the gecko. I mean, I have this thing for, for reptiles and amphibians, as you probably know by now. Turtles are at the very top of the pile, but frogs and geckos aren't far behind. The thing I've always marveled at about geckos is that they can walk up just about any vertical surface. I don't care what it's made of. I swear they could walk up a waterfall if they set their mind to it. Although, as it turns out, that's just about the only thing they can't climb. A little bit more on that later. So I started doing a little digging, and here's what I found. Clearly, I figured there's something special about their feet. And sure enough, I was right. At the base of the gecko's toes, they have very small, hairy structures called seti. They're basically bundles of tiny little bristles, but each bristle can divide into smaller bristles, little bunches of them called septuli. This is the secret to their climbing ability. But to understand how they work, we have to introduce a little bit of physics into the conversation. These sub-bristles, these septuli, are so small that they form strong magnetic attraction at the atomic level with the atoms in the surface of whatever it is they're touching. And because there are millions of them, each one creates its own bond. These covalent bonds between the atoms in the gecko's feet and the atoms in the climbing surface are strong. So strong, in fact, that a million of them, which would take up less surface area than a very small postage stamp, can easily support the weight of a human. That is extraordinary. But I am sorry to say they can't climb a waterfall. It turns out that if their feet get wet, 
they lose the bonding ability and they have a hard time clinging to whatever they're trying to climb. So waterfalls are out. So what else came up? Well, a few things. We think we're so advanced in our application of science because we're now using solar power. But plants have been doing it for hundreds of millions of years. I mean, think about it. Plants, trees, are basically the world's largest batteries. They take in solar power and they store it in the form of energy. We brag about our mastery of cool chemical light sources in things like LED fixtures, but fireflies and glowworms and plankton and certain types of fungi have been doing this forever. And what about cetaceans that use sonar? The Navy didn't invent that. Dolphins did. So here's what I conclude from all this. There are some things that animals do that clearly prove their superiority over humans, and those things have nothing to do with genetics. For example, animals never wake up in a bad mood. At 3.30 in the morning out in the country, when most of the humans are either blissfully asleep or awake and exhibiting the social graces of a chainsaw, the birds are singing. When an anthill gets trammeled, the ants don't scream and holler and shake their tiny fists at Mr. Nike. They matter-of-factly move the broken bodies off to the side, collect the scattered edibles, fix things up, and get on with life. There is one exception to this, though, that I know of. At the San Francisco Zoo, there's a gorilla who spends all day sitting on his haunches just scowling at the world. But every once in a while, without any warning, he picks up a ball of gorilla poop and he heaves it with pinpoint accuracy at some unsuspecting zoo-goer. And then he smiles. Now, I know people who think that that gorilla is exhibiting extremely antisocial behavior. I, on the other hand, feel that his behavior is entirely social. I also believe that it exhibits the signs of a keen, advanced intellect and proof that evolution ain't moving all that fast. For The Curiosity Project, I'm Steve Shepard. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.